Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's dive into the scriptures today and get to a very famous story that you all know. And we're, we're going to unpack this a little bit and take our time because it is very deep theologically. Even though you may have heard the story many, many times, there is a lot there. This is Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at 1 through 15. The title of today's message is The Root of Destructive Anger. The root of destructive anger. We're obviously going to be looking at the interaction of Cain and Abel and their interaction with the Lord and all that that entails. But what you'll see from Cain is that he has an anger that takes him to a place of destruction, where, as you know, he kills Abel in the story. We want to investigate that. We want to look at that and parse that out and try to understand the implications involved in that. But anger as a topic in and of itself is the application, because you're going to see it. And here's the deal. The root of anger will be shown in this passage. It is an issue carried all through Scripture. It is an issue that Moses had to deal with, with his anger, that eventually he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it, and he's forbidden to go into the promised land because of that anger outburst. We see at times that Peter gets angry. He denies knowing the Lord so bad. He swears an oath that he doesn't know Jesus in his anger. And even, believe it or not, the beloved best friend of the Lord, John, is called the son of thunder. Do you remember why? Because him and his brother wanted to rain down thunder, fire, and brimstone on a village that had rejected the Messiah. And he says, do you want us to call down fire on this village? And Jesus had to say, boys, boys, calm down, man. They were hot. They were angry. And you'll see this throughout Scripture, that anger is a problem. It'll say, be angry and do not sin. There is a time for righteous anger, obviously, righteous indignation. We saw that with the Lord's life, right? And he twice went into the temple and whipped them out of the temple in a righteous indignation. And there should be a, a righteous indignation in you. You should be angry at the right things. You should be angry that 60 million babies have been slaughtered in a womb. You should be angry at that. You should be angry at watching our culture devolve into, we don't even know what gender anyone is. There's 52 genders. And now kids are being kicked out of school of saying there's two genders. You should be angry about that. You should be angry that people are tampering with sexuality and perverting it to the point that anything goes. Do anything you want to do. I keep seeing this sign everywhere. Love is love. Really? So I can love a horse. I could do anything I want, right? I could, I could love a tree. Has it gotten that bad? Yeah. And now you can switch your genders and based on how you feel now, not according to science or not according to the Bible, that's for sure. You should be mad at that. You should be angry at those things. And that's a righteous indignation. It is okay to be angry. I sometimes worry when people say, I'm not angry about anything. That's scary. That means you're detached from reality. That means you live in a bubble because things are happening that, hey, man, that isn't right. You should, you should have that, that indignation inside of you. That's okay. That's good anger. That, that anger funnels itself into positive things. 
But then there's this destructive anger. There is this destructive anger that gets out of control. And it leads you to say things you shouldn't say. It leads you to do things you shouldn't do. It makes you make mistakes. It clouds your mind and your clarity. Your wisdom goes out the door and you do things that are stupid because of this anger inside that's not corralled. I read a story, and this is a shocking story. But as someone gets angrier and angrier through life, they start having a disposition of anger. You ever been around someone like that? They have a bad case of the bitters. They're just mad all the time. I saw this story this week, and I thought, wow, this is bad. This is about an angry neighbor. You might live next to an angry neighbor. I don't know, but this is really bad. There was this boy. His name is Max, and this is in Canada. This boy, Max, has autism, and he lives with his mother, and the mother has multiple sclerosis, and so she's debilitated, and during the summer breaks from school, his dad will take him to his grandma's house, and she relieves several hours a day from the mom who's struggling with MS, and so he goes with his grandma and gives his mom a break a little bit. Anyway, he's a good kid, but where the grandma lives is a very angry and hateful neighbor, and then Max will go out playing and, and he'll run up and down the street and, you know, ride his bike and do things that a normal kid does. But there's this neighbor there and it's a very hateful neighbor and she would rather see Max dead. And the reason we know that is because she wrote a letter to the grandma. And in this cowardly letter, this neighbor, hate-filled neighbor, wrote to the grandma and Max's family calling him a retard and saying he scares the normal kids on the block by this dreadful noises that he makes. She brashly called him in the letter an idiot kid, and the parents are a bunch of dopes for letting him play outside. She suggested that he's a hindrance to everyone in the neighborhood, and always will be. And the parents ought to take control of this wild animal kid who should be in the woods rather than bother anyone in the neighborhood, she said. Better yet, she said, they should donate his non-retarded parts to science and do the right thing and either move or euthanize him. Either way, we would all be better off, she said in her letter. Please tell me, how does a person get there? A mentally handicapped child, MS in the mom, a grandma trying to take care of him. He's just outside having a good time and she wants him dead. How do you get there? Well, you'll see it today. You'll see it in Cain. And it starts a long process of a fuse that gets lit and goes to where that bomb goes off. And we want to investigate. So I think it's good that we're going to break this in two because there's a lot here. And I think it's worth investigating because it will answer the question in all of us that deals with anger. We all deal with it at some level of really what's going on inside of us. Because we can get very angry. And if it's not the right kind of anger, it will come out in very, very destructive ways. Ways that when you're older, you will look in the mirror and regret. Ways in which you will lose sleep and have insomnia because of what we did. Because of that anger that becomes uncontrollable. Christians struggle with anger, like just the rest of the world, so we're not exempt from it. So let's investigate what happened to Cain and Abel and the whole situation with them and God. Let's jump to verse 1, and we'll start unpacking this. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, or Cain, Cain, 
It is, and kayan means possession, okay? The idea, obviously, they started procreating, and then, obviously, they produced Cain. The term Cain, there's another root in the Hebrew, which means to fashion, to shape, to give form to. There's a little bit there you can read into this with her naming him Cain, or Cain, we call him Cain in the English. It's almost as Eve is saying that she did this, okay? Now, she's going to give credit to God, but she's kind of doing a syncretism in this. And if you can read into the name that the root means to fashion, to shape, is that she shaped him, she fashioned him, or gave form to him, is the idea of her naming him, okay? So there's a little bit of ego in there. There's a little bit of her sin nature is already kind of coming out. Again, she'll give credit to God, but there's a part of her that thinks she did this, if that makes sense. And then it says, and said, quote, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And that's what your text says. Now, the problem with your translation is that's not what the Masoretic texts say in Hebrew. The Hebrew does not include from the Lord. And I italicized it, I believe, on your uh, scriptures there. In your Bibles, it says from the Lord. The original Hebrew says, quote, I have gotten or acquired a man, Yahweh. Okay? Now, the rabbis knew this, and the translators knew this. And for some reason, the translators want to insert, like, by the, or from the, or of the, to help the text. And unfortunately, sometimes the translators think they need to help the text out. Actually, they don't need to help it out. What Moses wrote should have been taught. Interesting enough, the rabbis knew this. And what she is actually saying is actually correct doctrine, believe it or not. It's more than what you think. She's not just saying, I have acquired a man from God. That would be simple. That's not what she's saying. She is saying, I have gotten a man slash God or Yahweh, which is very interesting. And it shows you that even in her sin nature, she believes Genesis 3.15, and she believes that Cain is the promised one. She believes that he's the anointed one, the Messiah. Because I don't know how, other than God telling her, she knew that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be the God-man. Hence, that's why she uses the phrase, I have acquired a man slash God, Yahweh, that the Messiah would be, obviously, the God-man. And she thinks it's Cain. Now, she has right theology, but a wrong application. She's applying it wrongly to Cain. Okay, And that's very interesting because... This is so early on in Genesis that the God-man concept is already coming to light, that the Messiah will be the God-man. And obviously, you know that, but this is Genesis 4 already, and Eve already knows this. Now, here's the funny thing is the rabbis knew this too, and they didn't know what to do with the text. They struggled with this text, and so what ended up happening, they started inserting things into it. And, the, and you can read all the rabbis' comments early on. They said, it can't mean this, it, it's got to mean this, it's got to mean this, it's got to mean this. They totally avoided the idea of the God-man concept. 
But as you know, the Old Testament has that pattern, and obviously the New Testament brings it out with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, being the God-man. Okay, verse 2. Then she bore again, this time his brother, Havel, or Abel, we say in English, but it's Havel. Havel in, in, in Hebrew means vanity or a breath. Now, in that naming of him, this is important, Eve is showing you already what she believes. And it's reflected in the naming of Abel or Havel. What do you mean? Well, she thought Cain was the God-man. But as he's born and as he grows up, she can tell he's not. There's something wrong with this kid. Okay? You can, he might have had a frown from the day he was born. I don't know. But there's something not right about this boy. And hence, when Avel is born, her disappointment with Cain, not being the God-man, not being the anointed one, but being a pretty much disappointment to her, expresses her disappointment in the naming of Abel or Havel, which means vanity. Now, you know Solomon will pick up that term in Ecclesiastes and he'll say, life is vanity, 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 meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Why would she name her second boy? Again, she had more kids than that, but just in the text, this, this second born here, vanity, breath. What's going on there? She is signaling to you and I that she's in despair, that she thought Cain was the God-man. He's not the anointed one, and they're still waiting for him, and that the life that they're now living her and Adam outside of the garden has become vanity to them. It's become meaningless to them. And she expresses that by naming Abel Havel. She's telegraphing what she believes as a mom. One more thing to this name. She might have intended to say his name is Vanity. His name is Vanity. Can you imagine naming your kid Vanity? Meaningless. Hey, here's meaningless right over here. I just, it's hard to, but that's what they did. But she's also telegraphing another thing that she probably didn't know, but it's in the name. The name not only means meaningless or Vanity, it means breath. And breath is... Our lives are like a breath. Whether she knew it or not, his name is a foreshadowing that this boy won't live long. His life will be cut short. His life will be taken, as you know. So it, it, it's, it's a foreshadowing, whether she knew it or not, it's embedded in the name that he won't live very long. Interesting, huh? Let's move on. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now you think, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, it, there, there is in a little bit. It, it, the two professions, there's nothing wrong with that. The, the two professions are neutral, okay? One's a, one's a farmer and one's a rancher, okay? Or, 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 or a shepherd, I should say. And that's fine. But Moses seems to be implying something that he wants you to see in the text. What is it? That Cain, notice Cain is a tiller of the ground. When you see the word ground, it's called a remez in Hebrew, which signals, it should remind you of something previously ahead of that, that's signaling ground. What happened to the ground in Genesis 3? It was cursed because of Adam's sin. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. And what Moses is trying to do is tie you to that understanding of ground. He says, Cain works the ground. So he's his profession, if you can see this, is tied to the curse. Whereas Abel is a keeper of sheep. Okay? Well, as you recall in Genesis 3, when the Lord covers the sin of Adam and Eve, he has to kill two animals and he clothes Adam and Eve in the clothing from that those animals. We assume perhaps it may have been uh, two sheep that he that the Lord killed himself and covered them with their the clothes, I'm not sure, but the point is that Abel is associated to sacrifice. He's associated to things that help humans get connected back to God, if that makes sense. Whereas Cain is connected to the cursing of God and Abel's to life. It's a, it's a dichotomy you're seeing in the, not only in the professions, but in the naming of them. So keep those things in mind, okay? Now, again, don't make the statement right now, right off the bat, and write Cain off and say, well, you know, he's a loss of a ball in high weeds, and, and he's no account. It hasn't happened yet. You're going to see interaction with God. You have to keep the timing of things. They grew up knowing God, both boys. They grew up knowing how to do sacrifice, by the way. They were taught by Adam and Eve. Same household, same parents. There wasn't a bunch of gangs they were hanging out with, no bad influence, right? Hey, bad company corrupts good character. They weren't hanging out with bad people. Both boys grow up in identical environments. There's no threat of trauma. There's no threat of uh, anything bad could have happened to them at this point in time. So I want you to keep both things in mind, okay? So verse 3. And in the process of time, now that's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew, in the process of time means at a specific appointed time. And guess what that implies? It means that early in human history, I mean early on, from Adam and Eve after being kicked out of the garden, there is a fixed time in which human beings will make sacrifices to Yahweh. Okay? And it, 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 what the Hebrew is saying, it's a regularly prescribed time. So when you see Cain and Abel giving their sacrifices, it wasn't like a one-time thing. This passage right here in the Hebrew is saying this has been done habitually for a long, long time. This has been the pattern since they were little boys. Okay, so if that's been the pattern, what did they do? It came to pass that Cain brought an offering. Okay, so this was normal. A nor this a normal thing. Okay, where were they bringing it to? Remember in the last sermon I said they were kicked east of the garden, outside of that garden? Well, go back. let's go back to Genesis 3.23, refresh our minds a little bit so we can understand where they went for this, his prescribed place. And it says this in verse 23 of Genesis 3. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. That, my friends, right there is temple, tabernacle language. So let me give you some illustrations so you can understand. It's a, obviously the, the sword protects the entrance of it. A cherubim is protecting the entrance of this. Entrance of what? The garden temple. The garden tabernacle. So again, it's a wallless, 
roofless garden temple, but it is nonetheless a temple. And if you compare what was happening in the garden, it's the same as what the tabernacle has or the temple. In front of the tabernacle or temple, you'll have cherubim on the curtains. In the, in the one in the garden, you had real cherubim. And that curtain protected people from going into, you know, obviously, the temple. In this situation, it was the cherubim and the flaming sword that protected people or protected God from people going into the temple and polluting the area now that they have sin. So the whole thing in the garden is laid out in a temple format or a tabernacle format. What you'll see in the Bible is you're never going to get away from a temple. You're never going to get away from a tabernacle. You'll see it in Israel's life. Right now, our bodies are the temple. In the future, you have a millennial temple. And when we go to heaven, there'll be a new Jerusalem, which is shaped like a temple. It's without a temple inside, but the whole structure is actually going back to the garden temple. Nonetheless, what you're seeing is east of Eden is where they went. Hence, they would have come to what we call the altar of Cain and Abel, which in the temple would be the altar of sacrifice. So early on, all humans, including Adam and Eve, would have come to this garden altar and made their sacrifices there. And they knew what these sacrifices were to be. It was supposed to be at a certain time, certain place. And so we don't know the specifics of it, but they did. And the Hebrew is telling you they did. But notice, we'll go back to the text and notice what Cain decides to do. He decides to give an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So let's play this out. This is not Cain's first rodeo. Okay? This is not the first time, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to give the best. No, 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 no. He's been doing it all his life up until this point. We don't know how old he is, but he's been doing the sacrifices up until this point. And one day he decides, hey, I'm going to switch things up. I'm going to give the fruit or the produce of the ground, curse, what I can produce, what I made to the Lord for a sacrifice. But let's look at in contrast what Abel does in his sacrifice and watch Abel do the right thing. Verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Bingo. Now you and I know, because Abel's doing the right thing, we know what Yahweh required at the pre-appointed time, at the prescribed place, and what kind of sacrifice Yahweh wanted. What did Abel bring? Blood sacrifice. That's what the text is trying to say. Blood sacrifice, the firstborn of the flock, presumably a sheep, maybe it's a goat, we don't know. And notice what he brings. He brings the fat, which is the best part. He's bringing the best part, and it is a blood sacrifice. Abel, uh, Cain decides one day, whatever's going on inside of him, to give a bloodless sacrifice. And it doesn't even say whether it's the best of his fruit. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says, hey, I'm going to go and, and give this and we'll see what happens and roll the dice. Maybe God will accept this. Well, again, we know already that the precedent of blood sacrifice had already been started by God himself. And if you recall in Genesis uh, 3.21 through 24, just remember, it says also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. The only way you get tunics of skin is through sacrifice, right? And so early on, you guys with me on that? Go to the next picture. So early on, this is what Yahweh taught them. You will bring an animal and you will sacrifice him and you will shed his blood as I did for you. And so, you know, Adam and Eve knew this. And 
to them, it was horrible because they had to see these animals slain in front of them, their lives taken, the blood everywhere, to signal to them, this is what your sin does. Your sin causes death. And in order to have a substitute for this, we have to kill something and, and allow the lifeblood to be drained out of it because that's your penalty. And so every reminder of this was constantly on the Hebrew's mind, that blood is what is required. I want you to think about this. If you were training your children and you lived in Israel at the time of the Mosaic Law, I want you to think what you had to do with your kids. I mean, imagine this. So like on Passover, you would have to go to the where they sold lambs if you didn't own them, and you'd have to pick out a lamb. And this little lamb would be brought into your home. It'd be like a little pet. And you would have to inspect this lamb for four days to make sure there's no blemishes on it. And then at that point, when Passover comes, you're going to have to sacrifice that lamb. But you would become attached to that lamb. You had grown close to him, like you grow close to your pets. And a little lamb is, is innocent, man. He doesn't do anything. He'll let you do anything to him. He doesn't fight you or anything. And then you as a father would have to go with your children and watch the priest slaughter that little lamb in front of you and your family. And he would take that knife and would slice the neck of that lamb in front of your kids and let that blood pour out right in front of them. Why do you think God did that to kids? You think, well, that's just terrifying to them. I can't believe it. No, it's not. It is highly appropriate. Why did they do that in front of families? Why did they make sure that all the families sees that little land that was in their house get their neck sliced and the blood just pour out into the basin and then take that dead body and burn it on the altar in front of everybody? Why? God was sending a message. This is what sin does. It is horrible. And in order to pay for it, there must be a blood sacrifice. And there's nothing that can cover the sins. And then eventually, you know, with Messiah, nothing can take away sins other than Messiah's blood. He was teaching them uh, pedagogy-wise what is necessary for their atonement. The Messiah will have to do the same. And you think, wow, that's pretty hardcore. I know. You know, the problem is we live in a too sanitized world. We've got churches that won't put up crosses. Oh, that's, that's offensive. Really? It's what it took for, to buy our redemption. I'm not offended by that. You got churches that won't talk about blood. Well, it's going to make people upset when you talk about blood. It's pretty, too, too gory. No, it's not. It's the only payment for your sin. You understand that we're having a sanitized version of Christianity going on in America now? They don't talk about death, sin, blood, hell, all that, the cross, nothing. People are removing their crosses from the churches. There's a reason for that. If you get away from blood, if you get away from sacrifice, there is no redemption. Because if not, you're going to be offering fruits of your labor like Cain, and that's works-based salvation. So these churches that are getting away from sacrifice and blood are getting away from the very thing that can save people. God didn't think it was inappropriate. He wanted you to see the blood. He wanted you to see how important it is about when you sin against him and what is required. Let's continue in the story. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Obviously, why? Because the Lord had prescribed blood sacrifice. And Cain knew it. And all of a sudden, Cain is trying to switch things up. Why? 
Why did he decide to do this? Well, let's talk about the difference between Abel's offering versus Cain's. Distill this down. When God says, I want you to approach me this way and only this way, when you do that, it's not only demonstrating obedience, but you're demonstrating faith. And what God was telling Abel and Cain is this the way you approach me. It's only one way, and you must do it this way. In order to do that, you have to have faith. So you can't go based on your own dictates and what you think is best, but you have to go with the way Yahweh prescribed. That takes faith. Cain decides, I'm not going to do what Yahweh prescribed. I'm going to do my own thing, and I think this is better. And he's not operating in faith anymore because he's operating as a God unto himself. He's making the rules. This is where the anger starts happening. He doesn't like to be told what to do. He wants to do it his way. And what you feel, you feel like saying to Cain, hey, Cain, why don't you go to Burger King? Because they will serve burgers up to you your way. But not here. You're not coming this way. You have to come. The big term for this is exclusive. Yahweh is requiring the exclusivity of how to approach him. And folks, when you throw down the gauntlet of exclusivity, Jesus is the only way you're getting to heaven. If you don't accept him, you will go to hell. If you throw down the gauntlet, guess what the world will do? They get angry. How can you say there's only one way to God? How arrogant. How, I can't believe you would say, how intolerant. That's not being inclusive, Brandon. Boy, you're politically incorrect. God is saying there's only one way to him. And if you don't go through Jesus Christ, you are lost as a ball in high weeds. And you're not coming unless you go through the way Yahweh prescribes. And the way Yahweh prescribes takes faith because you have to believe that atonement has to be made for you. A substitute has to be made for you. They have to die, shed their blood for your sins. You'll never see the transaction, but only God sees the transaction. And that's the only way God will forgive you of your, that. It takes faith. And Cain says, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm done. I'm done with the whole thing of faith. I'm done. Don't want to do it. I want to see myself work for what I deserve. He thinks he should have access to God. He thinks that he should be able to come right into Yahweh's presence based on his performance. And he's been turned away. Your performance is rejected, Cain. Huh. See, what this is, you can almost see it's called tokenism. Tokenism. I'll explain that a little bit. Well, tokenism is, this is the way the world thinks. That I should be able to offer anything to God, and he should judge me based on my good works, and they should outweigh my bad works, and my token good works should get me in there because I'm really a good guy, and I have good intentions, and yeah, sometimes I, I mess up, uh, but I still have good intentions. It's called tokenism. I'm going to give God my tokens. I'm going to give him this token of goodness. And what does Isaiah the prophet say about tokenism? Your own righteousness, what you think is righteous, your own good works are nothing but filthy minstrel rags in front of him to be graphic. That's bad. So you have to have righteousness, a foreign righteousness that must come from a substitute. And that's what God was trying to teach them. But that's where you can start seeing the anger come up in him and saying, wait a second, my stuff should be good enough. Cain doesn't know, number one, he doesn't understand how holy God really is. That's the beginning part. Number two, he doesn't understand how sinful he really is. 
He thinks he's not that bad. Yeah, we all make mistakes. No, 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 no. Cain, all human beings, because they possess a sin nature, and because they violate just one command, will all be sent to hell if you don't have a substitute. That's how it works. That's how precise it needs to be. You have to be 100% perfect, and no one can. No one doesn't like being told that, you, that you have to be 100% perfect. That's why you need Jesus, because they don't like being told that. And so the anger starts coming up inside of them, just like it is here. And what you're going to see here is that you cannot separate the worshiper and the offering. The offering is, tr is transmitting a message from that person. So when a person says, I am good enough to go to heaven, I'm a good guy, his offering is telling you what he believes, not only about God, but about himself. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, by faith, Notice what Hebrews says. By faith, Abel, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith. What the world doesn't like about faith is they don't like believing something they can't see. Their life is ran on seeing, touching, feeling, whatever, experiencing, whatever it is. It's based on their five senses. But faith goes beyond the five senses and you have to believe in things that are invisible. You will never see how the transaction happened. You can't go back 2,000 years ago and watch Jesus die on a cross, but you still can't see the heavenly transaction of your sins being imputed to him on the cross and his righteousness being imputed to you. Did you see that transaction? No, you simply have to believe that transaction happened. What does that take? Faith, because you don't see it. You don't even feel it. When I got saved, I didn't feel anything. Now, some people have an emotional experience and whatnot, but that's not how faith operates. It's not you're saved if you feel something. You're saved if you believe, and that's it. There's no feelings involved. It's You're convinced and persuaded that this is true, and that and if you believe, this transaction will happen. You will be born again. Now, I didn't feel being, when I got born again. I didn't feel anything because it's a matter of faith. Cain wants something he can touch, hold, feel. I want a liver quiver, whatever it is. I want an experience with God. Uh, uh. No, it doesn't work like that, Cain. You will come to me by faith. And that's how the world is operating. Now watch what happens. And Cain was very angry. It literally in the Hebrew means burned exceedingly in him. And his countenance fell. It's funny. He won't say anything, but you can see it in his face. He's wearing his emotions. I saw uh, years ago they, they did a television show uh, where they put a hidden camera in a restaurant, and the experiment was that these people would sit there eating their French fries, and someone would come sit next to them and just start taking their fries and start eating them off their plate. Did you ever see that one? And, and the people, the funny thing about the people, nine times out of ten, no one will say anything. They're just sitting there, but you can see it on their countenance. They get mad and angry, and they clench their fists. How dare someone eat my fries? And, and the person's just taking their fries, and it's all on camera. I don't know if it was a, what was that, that old show that used to be on there? Hidden camera? No. Candid camera. Some of you guys are too young to remember candid camera, right? But they were doing that. And the funny thing is their facial expressions just get all gnarled up. They didn't say a word, and that's what Cain's doing. He's getting all gnarled up inside and angry, but he won't say anything. The reason he doesn't say anything is because if he says something to attack Yahweh, he knows he's in trouble. But he's going to shut his mouth 
but his emotions are there. He's that angry. And so he's going to keep it inside. He thinks he can hide, but Yahweh obviously sees this. God sees this. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? So obviously God knows being omniscient, what's going on. I, he can see, I can see it on your face, Cain. Come on, what's happening? By the way, this is Cain talking with God back and forth. I want you to see this. Here's the question. You can do the homework on this if you want. Is Cain a believer? Because God's talking to him. I don't know. I want you to research this on your own. There's theologians that actually go both ways. But he's talking with God. He's interacting with God, by the way. And God will tell him how to get fellowship back with him, by the way. It's interesting. Very interesting. Don't want to be dogmatic, but it's enough to chew on, enough to research. Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Hey, Cain, we've been doing this the whole time you've been alive. All of a sudden, you want to change the rules of the game. I haven't changed the rules of the game, but come on, dude. You know if you do the right thing, I'll accept you. What does that say? If he is a believer, if that's true, God is telling him how to have fellowship back with him. Again, we know obviously, and even in the Israelite culture, that they could make sacrifices and not be saved. But so, so what God's doing, either if he's an unbeliever or a believer, is telling him the way to come back to him. So God says, come on, you know, you know how this is, come on. Isn't it funny that when you're witnessing to people, they intuitively know the law. I mean, I'm talking about the law of God. And as you recall, Paul says the law of God is written on their hearts or their conscience. They intuitively know. And then we know the other passages in, in uh, John 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They're being convicted of that right now. And so when you talk to someone, this idea of I'm ignorant, I don't know what I'm doing, you, you know, no, 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 no. The law is convicting them. The Holy Spirit is convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so they might pretend that they don't know and be ignorant and play stupid and play dumb, but they know. They know. And God is telling each one, each human being, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you come by my son, Jesus Christ, will you not be accepted? You know I've provided the way. You know the Holy Spirit has convicted you. No one on Judgment Day is going to say, hey, I didn't have enough information, man. Uh, this is, I, this, you, if you give me just a little bit more, I would have believed. No, no, no. They already have enough right now. Hence, that's why they stand condemned. They are not ignorant of this. And Cain isn't either. He knows good and well what it takes to come back. So the, the issue then becomes, God says, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, that's very interesting. That's extremely interesting. What is he saying here? He says, if you don't master this, if you don't get your anger under control, it's going to lead to a bad place. But you need to get your anger under control. Okay, we all got that. That's what God's saying to him. Master this. Master your anger and your master, because he's mad at God. He's definitely mad at God. But here's what's going to happen. When you're mad at God and God's invisible and he has no physicality, how are you going to seek revenge on God? You can't, right? When God took human form, what did they want to do to him? Kill him. If they, the human beings on this planet could get their grimy, sinful hands on the Holy One, the minute he becomes flesh, let's kill him. So we already know what people want to do with God. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. So, but what do you do with an invisible God that you can't see, touch, feel, or anything like that? 
then you attack the nearest things to him. So that anger that's going to come out is going to be foisted on Abel. It's going to take it out on Abel, his anger towards God. But this is an interesting passage, and I don't want you to miss this one. This gets deeper than you can imagine. The sin that lies at the door. What do you mean by the Hebrew word is robes? It means crouch, but it's a cognate of an Akkadian term. Interesting. In the mythology of demons, not that demons are a myth, but there's the way the, the pagan world functions with the demonic. There's a lot of myths surrounding demons, even though demons are real. What they had as folklore a long, long time ago, and it's even with us today, is that demons were in the doorways of buildings, and they guarded either the inhabitants in the building or they protected from any threats without, that it would actually be in the threshold of the door. Interesting. Modern thing that's still with us from about 6,000 years ago. When you got married, did you carry your bride over the threshold of your door? That's an ancient pagan practice of believing demons or spirit creatures were in your threshold of your front door. And so hence, they would carry the bride over the threshold to prevent her from stepping on the demons in the door. I did that. I'm a little pagan heathen. And I didn't even know that was happening. I just did it because what? why did we do it? Because it was tradition, right? We did the whole thing. It's tradition, tradition. Did we know the, what was behind the tradition? No. If someone would have told me, Brandon, don't do that to your wife because you're going to pretend like there's demons in the door and it's going to be a mess. I wouldn't have done that. But again, this is 6,000 years ago. I mean, this is the nonsense that they were doing back then. And so anyway, the funny thing is the way it could actually be translated is that a demon lies at your door, not that they were living in a house or anything, but again, it's Moses's language in 1500 BC, okay? I want you to understand that. He's writing something that's, he's writing in 1500 BC. This was for almost 3,500 years before this, right? But he's using his language of his day. The language of Moses' day is they definitely believed in superstition and demons residing in the doorway of houses. Back then in Cain and Abel, there was no houses or doors from what we understand. But nonetheless, what Moses is trying to communicate or what God is trying to say to Cain, if we can understand the language, is that, dude, if you don't get control of this anger a demon will take control and use this as a foothold to do something destructive in your life. <gasps> well, there it goes. I now understand why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 said, be careful to not let a beach hold or a foothold get established in you from the enemy. God is warning Cain of a beachhead that could possibly be established in him if he doesn't get his anger in control, that a demon will take that and use it to do something awful. Bingo. Got it. That's the same language as the Apostle Paul. And that's the same thing for us, too. If we don't get our anger corralled, the spiritual realm will use that against us. Will use us to make bad decisions, 
do stupid things because we won't master our anger, because we won't get control of it. We will let it get out of control. Now, some application before we stop. We'll finish the rest of this next week. And sure enough, he doesn't get in control of it. And if this is what's saying, a demon does use that and causes him to do this. Again, it's tied to Genesis 3 of Satan using Eve to tempt Adam. And then now Satan is going to use Cain to kill Abel. Abel is a prophet, by the way. The writer of Hebrews, or even, uh, he's in the Hall of Fame of Faith, obviously. But Jesus even calls him a prophet. There's a lot more going on. We'll pick up on this. But if he's a prophet of righteousness, it would totally make sense why Satan would take advantage of the anger in Cain to kill him, to kill Abel, the prophet of God. It totally makes sense spiritually when you put it all this together and you bring in the demonology in all of this. It totally makes sense. Okay, the application. The anger that you see in Cain, now this is a hard pill to swallow, we must all acknowledge that it's somewhere latent inside us as well, that it's there. And if it gets touched in the right place, it can erupt inside all of us. We are all capable of this. That's the message of Genesis, that we're all capable of this. And uh, if you're not in touch with that, of that reality, then you're in denial. Because that's, it's there. It's in our sin nature, and you can't deny it. What God is saying to Cain is exactly the same thing he says to us. Master it. Master the control. Okay, so what is this about? At the core of this is wrong theology. That's at the core of this. Cain is not thinking straight anymore. He's intentionally apostatizing. He's intentionally going away from what he knows to be true. He's going away from it. And it has to do with his own thinking, his own rationale, becoming a God unto himself. And hence, when he decides, this is what I think is right for Cain, at the core of this is idolatry. At the core of anger is idolatry. At the core of anger is you protecting something or yourself from threats from the outside. It's you facing someone rejecting what you think is right about reality and someone saying that's wrong. It's you afraid of losing something. It's you being threatened that something might be taken away from you. So at the core of anger is wrong theology, an idol, whether it's yourself or something, money, whatever, fame, fortune, whatever it is. And if someone says no to that, says that's wrong, that's rejected, you feel threatened, and then you want to protect. And in order to protect, you have to go on the offensive and attack. And that is at the core of anger. That is at the very core of why we get so angry. I'm talking about in an unbiblical way. And guys, I, I know full well, when I had my idol in my life early on, my I, and you, you guys know, I've, I've told you about this, is my idol was athletics. My, my idols was, was a ball, basically. I know that sounds stupid, but my idol was that. If anyone ever, ever threatened my idol or threatened to take it away, I, I went on the rampage. How dare you try to get in the way of that? Because it was me and my idol. 
mean whatever that was. And if you try to get in the way with it, buyer beware. I'll come after you on that one. I mean, this is how bad it was. You hit a home run off me, I'll throw at your head. I hear, oh, that's not Brad. Yeah, that's me. That's me. I come after you. I'm not going to put up with anyone coming after my idol. And I, I, I now know it. I'm 45 now, and you see it. Man, you're crazy, dude. You're crazy to think like that. And I remember guys used to tell me, when you get on the field, you're like, you're a different person. Yeah, I know. I become a demon, man. Spitting and snarling and, and just nasty as all get out. And no one's going to get a hit off of me, man. It's just, I, I could flip a switch, dude. It was weird. It was weird. And by the way, I know where that switch is at. Still, I know where that switch is at. That's why sometimes I have to back off, man, because I know where that switch is at. So when I'm saying this, this is not theory, man. Anytime someone threatened my idol, switch went on, boom, I'm in attack mode. That's how easy it is. That's how easy it is. Now, here's the deal. We're going to get more teeth to this next week and explore all these little aspects of anger because it all comes out in him and just floods out. And, and people are dead afterwards, man. It is bad. But again, here's the question. If you deal with anger, what idol are you protecting? Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.